episodes of the National Museum of the Surface Navy Battleship Iowa Scuttlebutt podcast broadcasting live aboard the Battleship Iowa in the Associated Foundations Training Center and uh, joined here in the room by uh, no other than uh, IT Dave to my far left, <laughs> uh, Nuts and Bolts Mike to my far right, um, Captain Roundup slash Prince Vespa to my direct <laughs> left, Kyle. <laughs> No might stick. And uh, oh, uh, ice queen. we've got the ice queen, No, none other than our producer, Moran Fangler. And we are joined uh, virtually um, by a special guest today uh, that's got a background in uh, some of the history, especially uh, pre-Pearl Harbor diplomacy and the role of the Navy, um, Dale Jenkins, who has recently written a book, I think coming out soon, called Diplomats and Admirals. Of course, I didn't say who I was. I'm Jonathan Williams. None other than the Large Ego Award winner. <laughs> you need no introduction. None whatsoever. Everybody knows that voice. So uh, let's go ahead and get right into it today. And uh, uh, Dale, as you can tell, if you haven't listened to our podcast, we're, we're an odd group of people that work too much and sometimes go a little off kilter, just as a forewarning. Um, but why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Dale? Well, uh, I was in ROTC uh a student and uh, was commissioned in the Navy, served most of the time on a destroyer. Uh, so I, I'm uh, part of the Tin Can Navy alumni. Uh, and since that time, I've been active in, well, my, in business and banking, mostly in real estate. I spent five years at the Council on Foreign Relations uh, in New York uh, with an extensive experience in real and uh, international relations there and since that time i've been working on a book diplomats and admirals which traces it really focuses on one year with a lot of background bringing into it uh, but one year from july of 1940 until june of 1941 which includes uh, about six months of what turned out to be failed diplomacy, our uh, inability between the United States and Japan to avoid the war that broke out. Uh, it all resulted in Pearl Harbor. And then from there, we had uh, six months, in, as described in diplomats and admirals, of naval action uh, culminating in Coral Sea and then Midway. Uh, during that period of time, even though the United States was at war with Japan and with Germany in the total access, Axis forces, uh, the entire war was Navy because we had no way of putting Army troops anywhere, uh, even, either in the Pacific or in the Atlantic, uh, until later in 1942. So uh, it's all about the Navy for the first uh, seven, eight months uh, of uh, of the entire involvement in World War II. And so, this is what I cover in the second half of my book. So, Dale, what, what really got you interested in that topic out of uh, curiosity? <laughs> Interesting question, because I've been thinking of this for a long time. Uh, every year, we have a celebration of D-Day, uh, June 6, 1944. And I have every respect for the, all the participants in that. I uh, great respect for the sacrifices that were made. Uh, 
and there's no way to detract anything from that effort. However, I have said to people, uh, you know, you're two years and two days late. Uh, by that time, unless something really unusual happened, we were going to win the war. We knew that, knew it at that time. A lot of people are going to be killed, but we were going to win the war. In 1942, that was far from clear. And the turning point of the war was midway, June 4th, 1942, two years and two days earlier than D-Day. And so I, would, I wanted to explore uh, as much as I could about midway and learn what happened there and realize that we had snatched victory out of, uh, in the last few moments, uh, it was far from a clear victory. But what led into that was took, took me all the way back to how we got into the war, all the uh, negotiations that went on between Japan and the United States that culminated in Pearl Harbor and then followed through with the carrier actions, including the Doolittle Raid on Tokyo. Uh, and that led into to, uh, Coral Sea and, of course, Midway. So, in effect, I, had, I started in the end and worked my back to the beginning. If we look at, you know, 70, 80 years ago in 1940 as uh, something that you studied, um, 40 to 41, what today, how would you relate those lessons today and those lessons learned? And, and how would you communicate, I think, over to um, those serving in our Navy today, the diplomats and even uh, uh, everyday Americans to understand how this all ties together and why it's even important to our nation? It's a, it's a tough subject. It, uh, I don't think there's an easy answer. I think it's, it's, a, it's having a constant mix of people uh, and um, having diplomats visit armed forces uh, commands, having uh, naval uh, army, air force, marines, and so forth, Take, taking active roles in in diplomatic events. Uh, you mean, sure, we have Marines in every embassy. I don't think they're involved very much in in the diplomatic work. It's it's a it's a constant effort to have not only education but interaction. There's no substitute for it. Well, and and I think you you talk about that interrelation between diplomats and and our military. Um, which some of that actually happens during fleet week and um, even some of the events we do here aboard is trying to facilitate those conversations and those relationships. Um, you know, how does that, I, I guess I'm coming from an everyday American standpoint. How does that affect me? I mean, I, I, I know that sounds almost ignorant and um, I know how it affects me by the way, but how, how would you say that affects um, the voter uh, the person that is putting our, our congressional members or senators in office to um, consider budgets for our armed forces, um, consider appointments for, for those that may be uh, serving as ambassadors overseas or in some kind of diplomatic role. Um, how would you explain the importance of that to the person that may not understand that? Well, you know, we, we have, it's, it's even more difficult now than it was uh, during World War II and even for some period afterwards. We have an all-volunteer force now. 
Uh, and my concern, frankly, is that they became that they've become somewhat isolated to the general population of of the country. Uh, you know, we're, we're now at the end. We just saw the other day the last Medal of Honor winner yeah. died. Uh, a man, ninety-eight years old. Woody Williams, uh, Herschel yeah. Woody Williams. Yes, what an yes, amazing man! Yeah. And he was he was Iwo Jima. Foundation and so yeah. forth. Uh, there, there was a there, there were people like me, people that served for several years and then came back into the civilian uh, population. And as a result, there were there were large numbers, millions of people that had served at one time and then came back into the civilian sector. But they still had that experience. They still had that background. They had that point of view. There was, in effect, an interaction that w- that went on. And my concern now is that with an all volunteer force, with with more people making careers of the service, uh, it's it's more difficult to have the interaction that we need. Uh, what, one of the things that I've been very pleased to say is more veterans of the armed services actually running for public office. You know, the, the last time around and, and the, the candidates that have all already announced, there's, there's a lot of them that are running for public office, and I think that's a wonderful thing to say. Yeah, I would have to concur with that. As a, as a veteran myself, I've often expressed the concern that we are creating a caste society those who have served in the military and those who have not. And that gulf seems to be increasing. You know, uh, when I came home from Gulf One, the phrase, thank you for your service, really meant, I'm really sorry what I did to your dad in Vietnam when he came home. And I think that's morphed into something else where it's still appreciative by much of the population that uses it, but it's also like saying, bless you after you sneeze. It's an automatic response to somebody who has served in the military. And it, um, and it serves almost to drive the gulf wider to say, oh, you're one of those and I'm not. And it, it's, uh, it's an interesting concept. I used to fight with my dad, not fight, argue. My dad served in uh, the 50s and is a big proponent of compulsory service. And I have always been a big proponent of an all-volunteer force. But the points that yeah. you make are extremely valid, extremely valid. And, and we see them today. And uh, I'd be interested on your thought on what... How do we fix that? How do we fix that? Well, you're doing one thing right here. Uh, this podcast with people like us, including me and so forth, uh, can get out and at least contact some people. Uh, you know, it's, it's limited. It's difficult. Uh, I wish I had answers to it, but, uh, but I don't. I'm hoping that, that my book, will get enough publicity that that people will see the need for it because uh, it's all laid out there. Uh, Roberta Wolstetter, uh, uh, a historian in the 1980s who received an award from President Reagan at the time, she lays out the, the gap of, of communication that occurred that led to the disastrous decisions at the end of November in 1941. We had an agreement with the the Japanese that they would withdraw from southern Indochina in exchange for a resumption of oil. 
that was in place and it was it was kiboshed by the by the by the Chinese uh, Chiang Kai-shek and Madam Chiang who wanted the United States in the war on their side which is exactly what happened I think this is nobody realized at the time that a war between Japan and the United States in the long run China was going to be the big winner and here we are today 80 years later China is the big winner in that war this is powerful t- stuff too because you know so many people when they look at World War II they just look at the, the battles they look at the actions they see how many battleships are sunk but they don't really understand the background the geopolitical background that really occurred, and oil was a powerful factor, of course, in the Western Pacific, and it was a huge issue for them. And natural resources were a major problem for the Japanese. And and you look at things happening now, you know, there's there's real problems with oil, and there's real problems with natural resources, and now we're having a real challenge. So I, I think it's I commend you for actually addressing this diplomacy side. I think it's fascinating. You know, some years ago I read. Richard Massey's books, uh, Dreadnoughts and Castles of Steel, and the geopolitical stuff was absolutely stunningly fascinating to me, and it was amazing. It, it really outlined how battleships and the surface navies of the world in the early part of the last century, which was in fact the first arms race of that century, really came to be. People need to pay attention to this stuff, it, and it's not really being addressed, I think. You know, today's problems really are an echo of what's happened before. Yeah and, yeah, and and I think it's 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 really uh, that's what we're trying to do is is raise that awareness that this continues. Um, where I think as we get further away from World War II at eighty years ago, and and as I like to say, you know my my um, you know my parents' population Civil War was eighty years before I think eighty five years before, um, and now we're yeah. looking at um, my kids that that you got that same you know that same distance, and I think as a population. Um, we have a lot of lessons learned, yet we're still in, despite World War II um, being officially over, if we look at the, the uh, what's going on throughout the, the world with Russia and China um, and some of those dynamics, it, it, it continues. I mean, in my opinion, we're continuing some of those issues, and, and, uh, and it's interesting to watch, and I think we, we should even revisit in future podcasts on this, Dale, if you're interested in doing that. Yeah, yeah. Sure, we can do. We we haven't talked about the Japan-U.S. negotiations that went on uh, over a period of of the four or five months in at the end of 1941. Uh, there were complicated relationships. In, uh, we had poor advice being given to Cordell Hull, the Secretary of State, by somebody named Stanley Hornbeck who was in turn advised by Alger Hiss, who literally turned out to be a Russian agent. Oh my he was only ever indicted for, for perjury. Uh, it wasn't clear until after he died, which I think was in the 1990s. And after that, some documents were released by the, the Russians that clearly show he was a Russian spy. Wow. And he was the one that was advising Hornbeck, who in turn was Russian was advising Cordell Hall. And they saw that a war between Japan and the United States would benefit Russia. Well, it turns out that Russia wasn't the great beneficiary. It was China. Hmm. The war between Japan and the United wow. States benefited China. This isn't over, too. Japan <laughs> controlled, through their expansion earlier, five, uh, 
50 years before World War II. They had taken Korea, they had taken Mongolia, parts of Mongolia, mm -hmm. which is different makeup than it is today, and the island of Taiwan. That was the Japanese Empire. Had they never gotten into a war with us, they would still have that. Uh, and that would have offset anything that China was doing. And that's what, of course, uh, his Hornbeck and Cordell Hall put in place. And the failed diplomacy, uh, November 26, 1941, when Cordell Hall delivered the ultimatum to Japan, uh, set all that in motion. Yeah, this isn't over yet. 20% of our semiconductors come out of Taiwan. I'm sorry? You know, 20% of our semiconductors come out of Taiwan right now. This, That's this right. Is, this is not over. This is a very, you very know? important yeah. situation. And next week we'll have the Director General of the Taipei Economic uh, Group well, here, too. And, and I think amazing. we're seeing in our economic conditions right now, with not just um, the inflation situation, but the supply chain issue, um, and, and watching, I think... Um, there, there has been a little bit of uh, things that hit the, the news, but it's relatively um, unknown. Uh, some of the, the, the secondary sides of supply chain, you know, the, the, some of the factories over in China that are starting to reduce uh, manufacturing or, or retail that's uh, mm -hmm. reducing purchasing. Um, you know, we continue to see a, a, a semiconductor shortage. Um, uh, we're, we're really, I mean, and, and I don't, I'm not sure the American population understands no. what kind of situation we are from a, from a geopolitical yeah. situation right now and how, well, it, how significant it, it, it is. It, it's going to, it's, it's playing into the, into the whole strategic situation in the Pacific. Uh, China recently launched another aircraft carrier. Now they have three, two of them are kind of obsolete, but still serves serviceable. The, the new one uh, has uh, the magnetic uh, um, catapults, just the way we do on our Ford-class carrier. Uh, so they're not lagging behind there. Uh, other countries are building aircraft carriers. And you talk about the surface Navy. Very frankly, I, I have questions about aircraft carriers. I, I This is going to run counter to the thinking in the Navy. But I think that that the surface Navy through missiles, through missile launching uh, from cruisers is, and, and, and submarines uh, may very well be the future of the Navy. Uh, I think just the way carriers superseded battleships, I can see a situation where carriers, even though they claim they've got defenses. Uh, when you think about hypersonic missiles, yeah. five times the speed of sound coming from multiple launchers uh, from shore base uh, islands, which the Chinese are expanding into now. Uh, it's hard for me to be convinced that the we can effectively defend carriers. I, 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 this is a very controversial statement, but I still have questions. Well, uh, really Rimpac kicked off yesterday, and the number of um, unmanned vessels that are out in Rimpac this year, I read an article, gosh, this morning or last night about 
Um, this is really, I think, one of their first impacts. They're deploying unmanned vessels at a significant um, number, and and I'm once again, I'm not sure folks understand um, they're utilizing them in secondary roles. But we're starting to see a, a larger fleet that some a good chunk of it's going to be unmanned. When I was down at Mega Rust, ASNE had the, on the cover of their recent, um, you know, normal publication, nothing but autonomous vessels period uh, autonomous so vessels the, are the disruptive technology the they're the thing that's going to change stuff it's going to be a hot area and it's going to be a hot area and we don't know how what's going to happen but it's going to be a mix of diplomacy and armed forces the navy is going to be very important either whether it's aircraft carriers uh, cruisers destroyers or submarines there's going to be a lot that's going to be happening out there and we have to have that interaction that we've been talking about between our diplomatic efforts and the armed forces. So, so I, I would say as we're getting, we probably went over our normal time, and I think no, this has good. been a pretty good conversation, Dale. And I, I think we're, we'll start digging into it because you, I think you kind of helped us, uh, you know, at what, eight or nine episodes in on podcasts that we've been uh, goofy all this time, we really actually started taking on serious topic here. And I think uh, it's given us some focus and guiding light for where, where we need to go for it. And uh, so with that being said, um, when does your book come out? November the 1st. November the 1st. And um, what are, are you going to sell it on Amazon? How do people find it? Yes, I'm sure it'll go on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. make sure you send us a link and we'll, we'll, get some publicity out there for you and as we get closer you know maybe another couple months out as we get closer to november 1st let's have another uh revisit and and see where we're at from a a geopolitical situation at that point and how to connect it back to the 40s you know i i was saying in the beginning i i my first uh cruise as a midshipman was on the battleship wisconsin so (laughs) the iowa (laughs) it's I, i might be familiar there. I'd be willing to come out there if you wanted to do something in person. I'd be willing to come out and and look at the Iowa and remember what the Wisconsin was like. <laughs> that might be fun. We, we, could, probably, we could probably live. do a, we could probably do a book do signing. Yeah. yeah. Do yeah, a book signing and, and and uh maybe do a live a live feed and you know with an audience and, and across the podcast as well and that awesome. could be a fun thing to do. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. So, so Dale Jenkins, right? I got your name right. Good. <laughs> Dale Jenkins' uh, book is Diplomats and Admirals. Thank you for for joining us, and and thank you for really digging into a conversation. I think it's important for listeners to hear. DaleAJenkins.com. Great. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us, and to our listeners. Uh, send us some feedback at podcast at labattleship.com. Um, for those of you listening, we actually watched the number of downloads and engagement that we received to try to help put together content that you want to hear. Uh, so we're trying different content. And uh, let us know what content you want to hear so we create um, or get with folks just like Dale to, to come out with stuff that, that you want to be involved in. With that being said, thank you all, and we're going to sign off here from the Battleship Iowa. Thank you, Dale. Thanks, Dale.